You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have your Bible, turn me to Colossians chapter 1 and find verse 15. Colossians 1.15 as you're turning there. Uh, my name is Jamin Roller. I am one of our lead pastors here uh, at Citizens Church. And, and so while uh, you're turning also, uh, probably doesn't need an introduction, but I just want to highlight again and say again uh, that Bleeker, Michael, we are just so uh, grateful that you're here with us. And this is Michael's, yeah. This is Michael's first Sunday leading us as our new worship pastor. So uh, if you happen to be out there and that is confusing to you in any sort of way, uh, there's just a lot of story behind that and how we got here. Uh, and if you would just find me after service, I'd love to have that conversation with you. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 uh, is a song, and we've been uh, looking at this song. It's a hymn that the early church used to sing. And we've been looking at it uh, for the last, going on three weeks now. This is our third week in that song. And, and here's what the song does, is it, it presents Jesus as just uh, beautiful, and, and it's just theologically rich, and it highlights all that is true about him that was true about him from before uh, creation began, and, and it highlights how he is uh, at work in, in making all things new. And it does so uh, in a way that is artistic. It does so in a way that is poetic, and that's what songs are. And so it has the effect, and what, what I am hoping that we've been walking in these last two weeks and been trying to draw out these last two weeks is that the effect it has, if, if we can be honest, uh, is that uh, there are certain things in our life that are exposed. When we come to really all Scripture, but when we come especially to passages like this uh, that go after both the mind and the heart, what we should experience is a level of exposure that the things that we know and the things that we believe uh, may not be the things that are coming out in our life or may not be the things that we love. And so the illustration that we've been leaning on uh, these past three weeks is it's like being at a feast. It's like being at a, at a dinner where the food is rich and it's fine and it's filling. And what you know in your mind is that this is better food. This is the better meal. But maybe in that moment what you crave is something cheap. Maybe in that moment what you crave is something less. And maybe even in that moment you know that what you uh, want is less than what you have. And so let me, let me, in light of that, let me say something that maybe uh, I can try to be more clear on than I have the past few weeks. We have approached this passage this way highlighting the gaps that maybe exist in our life between what we know about Jesus and actually what we love and what we crave, we have approached it uh, so that it might free us up to be honest about those gaps. Look, whether you have been a believer for uh, 40 years or you've been a believer for four weeks, in all of us, in all of us, there exists distance between what we know and what we want. In all of us, there exists distance between what we know and what we crave. And so what, what I want to double down on is that the danger, the real danger, is not actually the distance. The real danger is not actually the gap, because as those who are in process, as those who are on a journey of becoming more like Jesus, we should expect those things to exist in our life, because none of us are finished yet. The danger is to either not know that that distance exists, or to know it and be dishonest about it. And so what that's looked like 
where we've tried to be honest, I hope, in these last few weeks is when we get to he's the image of the invisible God, being honest about the fact that it's not simply asking us to believe that Jesus is the image of God, that Jesus is the life that we're supposed to live. It's asking, is our life actually conforming to Jesus's life? Like, is Jesus, his heart and his love, uh, is that coming out of us? Or are we simply trying to project to others an image of us that's not actually who we are, but that we want people to believe that we are. And that's different. Trying to conform into the image of Jesus, which is what Scripture would call us to, versus trying to project that we are who we're not, there's a gap there. Or if it was, uh, you know, knowing that Jesus is eternal and he holds all things together, and so my life and your life will find satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. Uh, But to know that, to hear that, he is before all things. He sustains all things. To hear that and then to leave this room and spend all week pacifying and staving that longing with things that are fleeting, that's a gap. Like to, to think that the ache of the soul will go away if I close one more deal or the ache of the soul will go away if I get one more like or if I have one more good date or I'll escape into a few hours of streaming or escape into a few hours of scrolling or escape into a few hours of drinking or a few hours of whatever. And look, we can have a conversation about where maybe some of that has its place and can be handled rightly and where they have their fit. But to quote again Augustine, you have, God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And so what we want to be honest about is when we see those gaps, we want to be honest about that we need the discipline in our lives to stay at the feast. How we said it two weeks ago is you do not not develop cravings for the feast by leaving it the moment we crave something less, the moment we crave something else. And so last week, we didn't have as much time, but we talked about Jesus being the head of the church, which goes after the gap between me knowing that life is not about me and wanting this to orient around me and did so in a short period of time. Uh, By the way, thank you to all of those who came up and just said how much you loved the service uh, and said things like, man, that was a really great 20-minute sermon. (laughs) You know, I loved what you were able to say in 20 minutes. It was really interesting that you just got all that in there in, in 20 minutes. Look, I know what you were doing. It was not subtle at all. In this morning, I will disappoint you. Uh, So let me repeat this again. If we think of all that, I'm not asking us to feel uh, guilty about those gaps that maybe exist in our life or even to be surprised, like our hearts are deceptive and we are human. The point of this song is to show Jesus exalted and beautiful and sufficient and then invite us head and heart to love, obey, worship Him. And of course... Of course, part of that will mean exposing the areas in our life that we need work. Despite what we may think about church, despite what we may think even about this room, this room is not divided between those who have it all together and those who don't. Those are not the categories that are real about this room. This room, if it is divided, it's divided between those who are honest about their struggle and those who are not or those who are honest about their struggle and then maybe those who just don't yet have eyes to see. And so we are at the table again, fighting against being a people who hear the song and walk away content to simply know what we know about Jesus, but none of what we know becomes what we actually crave and love and desire and live for. And and where we find ourselves in the next part of the song is just such a wonderful, challenging, convicting, hope-stirring part of the feast. Let's look at 15. 
we will stop after 18, and where we'll be this morning is seeing that Jesus is the firstborn, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So uh, Jesus being the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, what it's going to go after is it's going to go after the gap in our life that says we should be a people filled with hope and peace and the fact that many of us are a people that are filled with worry and anxiety. It'll take us a while to get there, but Jesus being the beginning, the firstborn uh, from the dead, where this ends for us is with a conversation about how we as a people of the resurrection should be the least anxious, most hopeful people there are. There are two words that are used here, beginning and firstborn, and both of those words are used by Paul to explain the same event. What Paul is doing, calling Jesus the beginning and calling him the firstborn, is he is unpacking the meaning and the significance of the same event. And here is the event, that three days after Jesus was buried, he rose again. Three days after he died and was buried, he came back to life. Not in some sort of a metaphorical sense, not in just some sort of a spiritual sense, but he he. He literally lived again and lives again. So I won't grow tired of repeating this. If Jesus dies and if Jesus does not come back to life, then none of this matters. It's a huge waste of time. But the fact that he did come back to life means that nothing will stay the same. Nothing will stay the same. Everything will change. Like if you are in our Acts study, we have about 100 men in the study and about 1,000 women, I think, that are taking the study right now. Um, as the early church is growing, what we've learned, what we've seen, is they have a message. As the church is spreading, they are witnesses, men and women, witnesses of what? Of the resurrection. If you were to distill down their message into one phrase, what they are going around uh, sharing with the world is that he is risen. Like he died and we thought this was all over and because he died we were hiding and we were scared and we thought that none of this mattered, but then he came back to life and we got it and we were empowered to go out into the world because we believe because he lives, nothing will stay the same. Nothing will stay the same. And so that's the message, that's the event, and then what Paul's going to do here is he's going to uh, add to the significance, well, he's going to unpack the significance of that by calling the resurrection that it was Jesus. When he rose again from the dead, he's the beginning and he's the firstborn. Let's take those in turn. What does it mean for Jesus in his resurrection to be the beginning? Uh, 15 and 16 and 17 have already told us that Jesus is the beginning of creation, that, that all the world came from him. So he is uh, before all things and, and everything that was made through him. And so uh, if he's already said he's the beginning, is this Paul repeating himself? No. When Jesus rose from the dead, something new began. Something new came into existence. The first part of the song was about Jesus being the source behind creation. Now things turn. In 18, it's saying Jesus is the source behind new creation. 
that there is a new world that has begun because Jesus rose again from the dead. And so I know that maybe new creation is familiar language with us. You might be thinking of a, a well-known verse, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And by that, maybe we understand that uh, there's a new beginning in my life and I have forgiveness and God's making me into a whole new person. And that is true. Uh, but in that familiarity, we might miss the breadth of what he's actually talking about here. He's not saying something that's just personal for me or for you. He's talking about something that's cosmic, that is history shaping and history changing. And so uh, to fight for clarity here, I want to offer a visual for what Paul's talking about, uh, to offer a visual, even at risk of maybe uh, this coming across like a lecture, to just unpack what he's saying and, and how uh, stark and uh, just how important it is. The way many of people of God around the time of Jesus views history was, was like this. And if you love books with pictures, you're welcome. Uh, in Jesus' time, many thought that history, they lived in a world that was called the present age. And the present age was an age that was marked by uh, sin and death and evil and injustice and suffering. And that's the age that we live in. And the people of God exist in that age. And, and, and there's worship of God, but we are mostly a minority people in that age. But what they're waiting for is they're waiting for a new world to come that was called the age to come. And so I'm living in the present age and I'm looking for the age to come. And the age to come is marked by restoration and worship of God and the presence of God and peace and joy and life and righteousness. So I'm living in the present age uh, and I am waiting for a new world to come. And, and, and so there's a New Testament conversation that Jesus has that, that puts this on display. Martha, if you remember in John 11, she loses her brother Lazarus. Jesus comes uh, and the funeral's already happening, and Lazarus and Martha, or Jesus and Martha have a conversation, and Jesus says that he's going to rise again. And you remember what Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This is what she believes. She believes that she's living in the present age, and her brother just died, but there is an age coming. There is a world coming where those who have died in the present age, if they belong to God, they will be brought back to life. They will be raised back to life. And so they're waiting for God. What he's going to do is he's going to act in history to shut down the present age and to bring in the age to come. And so there are beautiful ways that the Old Testament describes the age to come. In Joel uh, chapter 2, it describes the age to come like this. The new world will be like this. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. That's the age to come. 
That's what those who, who are around the time of Jesus, the people of God, they are waiting for, for God to bring that world. And so your kitchen's full of food and your table is filled with wine and, and the years that evil has taken away, the years the locusts have eaten, those will be restored to you. So you live in a world not where there's no more evil, but where the effects of evil shall be reversed and all that you lost, you'll, be, you'll get back and, and you'll never again be put to shame and you'll worship God who's been generous to you. And if we could just stop for a second. There is a shared desire in all of us to live in that kind of world. Um, If you think about a world with no lack and a world with no lack of food and no lack of joy and no lack of security and no lack of satisfaction, like at some level, this is what much of religion promises Um, At some level, this is what marketing and advertising appeals to, to be able to have security and to be able to have abundance of life. Like there's an election year coming in this country next year. And so much of what that will be is a man or a woman standing in front of their constituents uh, promising the age to come standing in front of their constituents, standing in front of their supporters, promising that they can bring about a life that's very similar to the one that Joel describes, promising that I can put uh, money in your pocket and I'll keep food on your table and I'll defeat your enemies and I can bring about the kind of world that you want to live in. And it's the kind of world that we all can long for and at least agree on, like joy and abundance and food and wine. Who doesn't love that party? Not the cheap kind of party, but to sit at the table with good food and good drink where there's love and laughter and freedom and peace and then to know that my past mistakes can be forgiven. Not only that, but to know that the ways I've been wronged will be restored. The years the locusts have eaten, uh, the, the world will be restored. Not only does destruction stop, but what you lost, you get back. Like wounds heal so completely, there's not even a scar And that's the world the people of God were waiting for, and they were waiting for God to come and for it to start. Okay, Jesus is the beginning. Meaning, when Jesus walked out of the tomb, when God raised him from the dead, the new age begins. When Jesus walks out of the tomb, the day that Joel is talking about, that day begins, the new world begins, the new creation begins. And and maybe you don't see it because there's a lot of present age all around, but it's because it happened differently than what everyone expected. Like uh, instead of the old world going away and the new one beginning, the new begins to pour into the old. And so visually, it would look like this. It's what theologians call the overlap of the ages, that when Jesus raises again, the age to come begins to pour into the present age. And we live in between these two worlds. We live in between these two ages, and we will until Jesus returns. And so the present age is still around, but the age to come is already beginning. And so just like you see right there in between, it's where we live in history. It's, it's, the, it's the, uh, the framework with which we should view all that we encounter in the world, that the beginning of the age to come has already started when Jesus rose from the dead. And that's what Paul means here. So that means that we tell two creation stories. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, Jesus rose from the dead. If your kids were to ask you, mom and dad, where did all this come from? And you say, what do you mean? 
Well, the, the world and the, the trees and, you know, the sun. Oh, well, uh, in the beginning, there was nothing. There was darkness. There was chaos. God spoke and the world came into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But if they were to say, Mom and Dad, where did all this come from? And you say, what do you mean? And they say, well, joy and salvation and forgiveness and the fact that, you know, uh, next week at church, the service will be filled with people being baptized and talking about grace and talking about a life transformation. You say, oh, well, once there was just sin and once there was just darkness and it ruled and reigned and Jesus, the best to ever live, was falsely accused. He hung on a cross for me and you. He went into the grave and all that was was the world that was. But if he stays dead, none of this matters. But death could not hold him. He came back to life. The world of hope and peace and joy began and nothing will be the same because in the beginning, Jesus rose from the dead. This new world has started. It's why, my friends, it's why how we live matters so much. When you confess, when you forgive, when you obey, when you fight for purity, you declare to the world that the age to come has already started and it's visible in your life. It's like this. Let me offer just another metaphor. It's like living in the turn of the seasons, which is what we're in right now. Right now, uh, summer is turning to fall. And that, that wasn't true two weeks ago. I don't care when they say fall starts on the calendar. Two weeks ago, we are in the store. And my son asks, uh, they have these decorative pumpkins on, for sale. And, and my son asks, Dad, can we buy one? And I said, absolutely not. It's 100 degrees outside, right? I got a sunburn walking into the store. We're not going to buy a pumpkin. It's not fall yet, right? And if you're one of those families that moved here recently from California for work, or you moved from Iowa, and you're sitting here wondering, does summer always last till October? Yes. <laughs> and if anyone tells you differently, they're in denial. It's always like this, Texas forever. And so, uh, but Thursday night, so that was two weeks ago, but Thursday night, Carrie and I are leaving home group, and as we're walking out, uh, there's this cool in the air. And then Friday morning, we wake up, and it's 40 degrees. It's fall. Like the cold front came in, right? So by the pumpkins, we did the fire, and, and, and it's, it's this uh, evidence that the season is turning because that first front has come in, right? Now, I think tomorrow it's back up in the 80s, so there's still some summer that's still around, right? We're not in the middle of fall. We're in the beginning of fall. But even tomorrow, if it is 80 degrees, right, you can't ignore the cold front. You can't ignore the fact that fall has started because the cold front, that first front, already moved in. The age to come has begun. The new world is pouring into the old. There's a lot of the old age that's still around in the old world, but you cannot ignore the resurrection. You cannot ignore the fact that a man came back to life, the age of death lost, and it's just the beginning of the defeat, and you can't ignore salvation that comes from the risen king. The season is turning, and we are at the beginning of the turn of the seasons, and the age to come is here, and it is coming, and one day the old season will be gone for good. Jesus is the beginning. That's what that means. 
He's also the firstborn. Uh, This uh, word makes a very similar point, but it makes the same point in a way that's very personal. If Jesus being the beginning is this uh, story about history, uh, Jesus being the firstborn comes and, and it looks you in the face and it says something so kind and so encouraging to you. Him being the firstborn means this. Christian, just like Jesus rose from the dead, you have been spiritually raised from the dead. You, uh, and one day you will be raised physically from the dead. If we can go back uh, with that framework behind me in our minds, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Another way to say that is, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is age to come. You are part of the future world. You've been made future world and nothing will ever change that. That will always be true about you. And so I shared this story in men's class about a month ago, but it helps make this point, so I'll share it again. The most interesting job I ever had was uh, the summer before Carrie and I got married. I was trying to save up for an engagement ring and I had no money and I went with a group of college guys to Salt Lake City, Utah to sell security systems door to door in Salt Lake City, Utah. At the time, Salt Lake and the surrounding suburbs were about 80% Mormon. And so they knew all about the door-to-door experience better than, uh, better than I did. And so uh, most of those porches that I found myself on, uh, they were houses that belonged to people who were Mormon. And most of them, when they found out that I was not Mormon, they didn't care what I was trying to sell. They just tried to convert me which I didn't mind because it opened up a conversation and a gospel conversation, that was great, but it always ended with them still being Mormon and me still being poor. So it was a really <laughs> discouraging experience. Um, so I did what, what, what most of you would expect that I did and about halfway through the summer, I just stopped trying. And I would drive around Salt Lake and I would read uh, and I would, instead of working, and I would think through how I would get Carrie to marry me with a cheap ring and no money. And so I started working on that speech, right? Like, hey, I love God and I've got personality, you know. Um, <laughs> and it worked. So uh, one day, though, while I was driving in the middle of nowhere, there was this uh, paved road that kind of just fe- felt out of place because there was really nothing around. And I turned on that paved road and, and, I, and I entered into this space that was just concrete and dirt and construction. And so I kept driving and following this road. And this road led to this beautiful home. Like right at the top of this hill was this beautiful home and it had a sign in the yard that said, welcome to your new home or come inside to see your new home or something like that. And so what I turned into, the the roads that were paved, what it was is it was this new, brand new neighborhood development that was being built out in a suburb of Salt Lake. And it was super nice. And the house that had already been built, the one with the sign in the yard, was the model home. And so I got out of my car and I walked in to see uh, someone else's new home and it was gorgeous and it was well furnished and there was like granite countertops and big glass doors and a beautiful backyard and wood floors and everything was just nice and pristine. And so I spent some time in there and then I walked back outside and was met with the reality that the, the neighborhood around just didn't quite look like the house that I was in. It was concrete and it was dirt and it was construction and it was just all kind of emptiness surrounding the house. And there's this contrast then between kind of the finished work of the model home and then everything else around it that was unfinished. But what the model home says, the purpose the model home serves is to come in here and to see this and to look around and then to walk outside and to know one day all of it will look like this. 
to walk out and to know that one day this won't be surrounded by emptiness, but it will be a house surrounded by other houses that look just like it. It will be a neighborhood that is full and beautiful and all of it built out and all of it beautiful and most of it financed by the bank. But the model home is the sign of what is to come. The model home is the beginning of what will be. And to look at it is to have a picture of what will one day be all around it. It's the firstborn home. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He raises back to life. In his body, he is glorious, and he is imperishable, and he is human, and he is alive, and in his heart, he is love, and he is mercy, and he is justice, and he is righteousness, and he's just the first. He's the model. He's the, he's the, uh, the sign that there is more to come, and there is more that has already come in this room is evidence of that. Christian, right now, you have been raised from death to life spiritually. You are being built and being conformed and changed so that your life is love and grace and mercy and righteousness. And being the firstborn, Jesus being the firstborn means he's the firstborn of the race of people who belong to the age to come. And that's you. And that's me. And he's changing our hearts, but he's not just the firstborn of a spiritual people. It's not just true spiritually. Him being the firstborn from the dead means that one day all who belong to Jesus will be raised physically from the dead if they die. If anyone is in Christ, he is age to come, always and forever. You do not have to fear death. It will not be your end like he has already brought you into the new world. It's what Paul means in Ephesians 1 when he says you've been seated with him in heavenly places. It's what it means when he says in Colossians 3, which we'll look at in a year, that he, you have been hidden with Christ. You've been hidden in him. Your sin, your sin doesn't get the last word. The firstborn is evidence of that. Your sickness, right? Jesus is the firstborn. He rose again and came after you so you could join him. Do you see any gaps? Do you feel like what we've said is we live at a time in history where the ages have overlapped, the season has begun, the new world is pouring into the old, Jesus rose, you and I have been raised to life, we're being made like Jesus now, if we die, it will not be the end. Do you feel any gaps between what we've learned, maybe what we've remembered, and how we actually live? Like... <laughs> If this is true, we should be a people of peace and of confidence and of courage as we know that the darkness will one day fade and all that's left is the beautiful city built around Jesus. Like Christian, we should be a people that are just so full of that kind of peace and assurance and so free of anxiety. Let me say this again. Do not hear then in that, if, if you're with me, if you followed me, and if some of those gaps are starting to pop up in your life and maybe starting to confront you and you feel a bit exposed, do not hear because of all that you worry about and because of all that you fear and the fact that me even saying the word anxious makes you anxious. 
Do not hear, like I am not inviting us together to walk in guilt or shame or embarrassment. Remember two kinds of people in the room, not the ones who have it all together and the ones who don't, the ones who are honest about the struggle and the ones who are not. And so what we're invited, like if we are discovering the distance between the peace we should have and the worry that fills our life or the peace we should have and the fear and anxiety that we actually live in, God's just inviting us in that gap to come in closer to believe these things, to sit in these things until that changes us because we have missed something together. If we hear that Jesus rose again from the dead and we nod an amen and leave the parking lot in 30 minutes filled with worry and fear, we've missed something if that's true. So let's go after some of those gaps. Uh, here's why I believe so many of us know this to be true and live in so much fear and anxiety still because we know that the age to come has begun, hear me, but we live as if the present age is all there is. We know the present age has, become, has begun. We live as if the present age is all there is. And the present age, what it wields, what the present age wields against your life and my life are these two lies. That if the present age is all there is, they're true. But the moment the age to come begins, they become lies. And here's, here's the two lies. That if the present age is all there is, you are responsible for your own justice. And the second lie is if the present age is all there is, you are responsible for your own security. If the present age is all there is, then you are responsible for your own justice. It means you have to right every wrong in your life. And that might mean over here, the wrongs that you commit, the sins that you commit. And so instead of being able to rest in the age to come that's here, the forgiveness that's here, the fact that you will, there nothing, nothing at all will separate you from the love of Jesus. He's the firstborn. He's brought you into that world. And yet if this age is all there is, you better do something about your own sin. You better do something about the own, your, the own gaps in your life so that you don't contradict yourself or be a hypocrite, right? And that, what does that produce? You know, if you're one of those that has just a, a, such a, a conflicted conscience about your own life and your own growth, that produces so much worry and so much anxiety. It also means over here, and there's maybe where I want us to dial in, that if I am responsible for my own justice because the present age is all there is. It also means I have to right all the wrongs committed against me. Uh, I have to correct every lie or make sure that I'm never understood. If I ever feel taken advantage of, if I ever feel overlooked, if I ever feel misrepresented, and maybe that's like small scale relational wrongs that happen or maybe a relationship in my job or relationship in my home, or it's the tragic, it's the tragic sins committed against me. And if the present age is all there is, the weight of making things right is all on me if the present age is all there is, the weight of fighting for myself is all on me. And there are so many in the room who have been on such tragic sides of unjust situations and such tragic sides of unjust systems and such tragic sides of broken families. And there, and you know this if you're one of those, there is a loneliness and a desperation and a worry associated with what if this never gets worked out? What if it never gets settled in life? What if it never gets righted? What if the lies and the hiding continue? What if the apology I deserve never comes? What if the forgiveness they should ask for never gets asked for? What if, and in that what if, if it's, if it's all on this age to get righted and therefore all on you to seek justice for yourself, 
all of the worry associated with that just plagues your heart. Christian, the present age is not all there is. Look, remember Joel, we are the people who belong to a God who will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Like he will restore what sin and selfishness and pride and abuse has taken and he will make it right. And he can begin doing that even now because the age to come is pouring in wounds healed so completely that there's not even a scar. And hear me, don't misunderstand. It does not silence your voice. It frees you to speak truthfully about how you've been wronged and to speak truthfully about what's happened to you and the ways in which you've been mistreated. But then the turn that those who belong to the age to come can make that nobody else can. I'm honest about how I've been wronged and then I can entrust vindication and restoration to a holy God who will bring all that is dark into the light and will judge with a righteousness that will not miss, that not only ends evil, but restores what's been eaten, unwinds all of evil's effects in your life. He is the beginning, the firstborn. It means you do not have to wait another day to begin resting in that peace and knowing that the parts of the present age that are most painful for you will be drowned out by the age to come because the age to come has begun and healing can begin and that starts by you entrusting your own justice to the one who will finish what he started. You don't have to carry that weight, and then you, my friend, are not responsible for your own security. This, if the first one didn't include the whole room, this one does. If this world is all that there is, if the present age is all that there is, store up for yourself treasures on earth. Protect yourself. Uh, from all possible painful circumstances, like make all the right decisions financially. You have to. You better. You can't afford a mistake. Make all the right decisions relationally, like your security, your future, your well-being is in your own hands. And that's anxiety-inducing. You know why? Because we know ourselves, and we know how scary it is to carry the weight of so much and feel so small underneath it. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying not to be wise. I'm not saying not to be a good steward. I'm not saying to not make good decisions according to God's wisdom. But most of us are anxious not about being destitute, but about being uncomfortable. And those are different. But if the present age is all that there is, you have to get out of it everything you can. And so it works like this. If I'm living as if this is all there is, the anxiety and the worry and the fear I'm inviting into my life, I'm inviting because I'm trying to avoid someday in the future. I'm trying to avoid a day that I'm really afraid of, like the day I lose my job or the day my kids get sick, or the day the lover leaves me, or the day the relationship falls apart, or the day that I'm found out, or the day people realize I'm not who I say I am, and I don't have what I say that I have, and I'm not as gifted as I say that I am, and so that's the day that I want to avoid. And so today, all of my energies and efforts have to be protecting me from the day that I don't want to have to live in, the day I don't want to have to see. And so I need to make decisions that can protect me. And so the sale has to go well. The person has to stay pleased with me. I need to win this fight. I need to put on this front because if I don't, then that will lead to this snowball effect. And then the day will come where I lose my job or the day will come when my kids get sick or the day will come when they leave me or the day will come when I'm found out. Christian, Christian, 
The new world has begun. Jesus rose again from the dead. He is the beginning. We are not the people who live in fear of the day that may or may not come. We are the people who live in freedom because one day Jesus rose from the dead. And if your nightmare day did come, he would be there with you. Like if your nightmare day came, he would be there with all his resurrection power to guide you and comfort you and sustain your life and lift your eyes from the nightmare day to the day when all will be made right. And this room is filled with men and women who would say, that day came for me and the risen Jesus was enough. That day came for me and on that day, the age to come poured into that dark day. You, brother, Sister, are not ultimately responsible for your own security. Your life is not in your hands. The day that most marks you is not the day that you fear in the future, but the day that you trust in in the past. The tomb is empty. Look, the age to come is here already, and you and I can release control. Your worst-case scenario is resurrection. Your worst case scenario is to be raised by Jesus. When things don't go as planned in your life, hope is not lost because things going as planned is not where hope is found. It's Jesus, firstborn from the dead, the beginning. We would do well to not leave this part of the feast. We would do well to sit here and to remember the resurrection like we worship a living God and a risen King. And so would you remember what we said about songs when we started this conversation three weeks ago? Songs are meant to be what? To be sung, not just one time, but to be sung over and over and over again. And so I wonder what could happen to the gaps in our life if we, as a people of the age to come, as a people of the resurrection, make it part of our daily life to remember that the tomb is empty. Not just on Easter, but to remember that Jesus rose again from the dead and that what we live in now is we live in the age that the firstborn has welcomed us in so that there would be a diminishing distance between what we know and how we live, what we know and what we crave. This Jesus who is strong and can sustain and is victorious and us who feel small and insecure and uh, a future that we don't know and can still be a people filled with peace because of what we know to be true about him and how that's changing us both head and heart. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are and for what you've done. I thank you for your mercy and your grace and your peace. Uh, there is not a single thing that I freak out about in life that will not one day be fixed or one day not matter. And so I pray that uh, being a people who live in the new world that is already beginning, that that would become something that just oozes out of our lives, that would become something that is changing us and shaping us and forming us into a people of peace 
into a people who can live with all of the remnants of the present age all around us and look confidently to where we see your hand now and where we know it is coming in the future. We love you. We thank you. So then we pray. Amen.